Hi, uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever time of day you're listening to this. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Woman by Definition podcast. This episode, I talked to Claire Fox, the Academy of Ideas director. She uh, established the Academy way back to create a public space where ideas can be contested without constraint. She convenes the yearly Battle of Ideas Festival and initiated the Debating Matters competition for sixth formers. She also co-founded a residential summer school called the Academy with the aim to demonstrate university how it should be. In May 2019, she was elected as an MEP for the North West England constituency of the UK in the European Parliament elections. During her tenure, which ended in January, she took a temporary sabbatical as Battle of Ideas Festival convener, but remains on the editorial board. I was absolutely delighted in this climate that we're in right now to catch up with Claire and get some of her ideas and insights into what on earth is going on. I'm, I'm so delighted. I've admired you for years and followed your stuff. Um, oh, that's so, so nice. Oh, um, so I've got friends who are still depressed about Brexit, like literally actively still depressed about Brexit. Do you have any words of comfort? What do you think Brexit will do to the average family? What difference will it make? I don't know that it will make a, a difference to the average family. I mean, first of all, people always think that it's going to be like, well, will you be richer or poorer? But it was never about that in the first place. I think that you want to look at it a different way. If people had voted for Brexit and it hadn't been delivered, by the way, it hasn't quite been delivered, there would have been a mass disillusion with democracy and the democratic process. <clears throat> and at the very least, so as a words of comfort, you know, people feel that it was worth voting if then when you vote, it matters. And if you'd voted and it didn't matter, that would have had very serious implications. So it did give a, a democratic boost. And that's important. And the awful terrors that it inflicted on people's imaginations about what awful things were going to happen were just the terrors. I mean, as it happens, it's very difficult to imagine them now because people are facing a real life terror of the pandemic and the consequences of that are, you know, have kind of usurped even the most dystopian vision. So I think that's it. I, I, I genuinely think that what people are frightened of is they thought it represented a kind of little Englander turn away from continental Europe, which is just not true. You know, people are not anti-Europe, they were anti-EU, they were not little Englanders, but national sovereignty is about democracy. And so in some ways, what frightened people most was the imagination of what they imagined Brexiteers were like. It was mm. a kind of scary vision. I, you know, I, I suppose if you thought that the world was being taken over by a xenophobic mob, but that just, that was a caricature based on little. And um, as a consequence, I think people should just go with it now. <laughs> well, I voted to remain right up until two days before I was 50-50 and I voted to remain. And then I think after about six months, I just thought there's something going on where they're not going to do it. And I think we lost the vote, but they're not going to do it. And what it brought to the fore was things like how, how little respect we have for older people, um, how little respect we have for the working class. Um, 
and I I don't know and I probably was part of that and I I didn't know it until Brexit well that's you're right it shone a light I mean it's it's almost difficult to remember but it's so bizarre that we've spent in the last few months genuinely being concerned about old people and talking about respecting old people and protecting old people well my goodness there were serious articles in broadsheet newspapers saying if this many old people die we'll have a majority of people who will remain now you know there was a clock that they had i mean i couldn't i mean i genuinely couldn't believe that you know i was it was terrible and i would you'll know you know in polite society or media circles or in the commentariat, people talking about working class people as though they were all knuckle dragging, stupid people. There was this sort of really exasperating uh, conflation of people with qualifications and wisdom and intelligence. You know, a kind of a bit of a eugenicist tinge to it, if the truth be known. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm. you're not qualified to vote. I mean, what do you know? You left school when you were, you know, without any GCSEs or O-levels, as they would say. Um, and it's like, what are you talking about? We don't have that qualification in a democracy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And yeah. some of these women are smart and bright. They just haven't got a PhD and they're thinking for themselves. And uh, but, but the fact that people had those conversations out loud and didn't feel embarrassed about saying things which maybe they had privately thought but they said them out loud and these were people who would see themselves as liberal and supporters of social justice and most of the time be talking about how we got to reach out in the arts world to include more working class people in you know coming to plays and so on and within seconds they'd be saying and those brexit voters you know those mm. backward racist scum and you think oh <laughs> uh, you know yeah. you're talking about the same people so it revealed a huge amount and anyway, I, I, I mean, I, it, it's, it has happened at some level. I mean, for Brexiteers, there's big arguments about what's going to happen in the next few months. But we have left the European Union and the world has not collapsed. Yeah, the world well. has collapsed, but it hasn't collapsed because of it. <laughs> Certainly has collapsed. I think looking at the media, the way the media has treated the protests about Black Lives Matter in comparison to the protests, something like the March for Freedom, or the way, um, you know, when Brexit, uh, it's, it's such a striking contrast. I'm really surprised not everybody can see it. Well, actually that's, I, I was thinking about that the other day because I, you know, I spoke at uh, um, the rally on, I think it was the 29th of March. Uh, and it was the first time I'd actually ever shared a platform with Nigel Farage. So it was of some note because it became a thing, but I spoke at that rally and that, uh, it was an incredibly uh, inspiring and moving day. It was full of families, people had come from all over the place. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't huge, but there was a good, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people in Parliament Square. And I was genuinely, even at that stage, genuinely horrified by the way the media tried to depict that and conflate it with, you know, some Tommy Robinson lads around the corner who were being bigoted. And they tried to suggest it was all the same thing and that anyone had gone on the 29th March was obviously a racist and so on. I went down, I, I, you know, and I, I just, I couldn't get over that because I just I felt it was so unfair. You know, it's it a ridiculous thing to feel, so how naive, you know, but the injustice of it. And if I felt like that and I had, I was able to go on Newsnight and talk about it. But if you'd been on the rally, the sense of unfairness of that, 
And then on the 31st of January, when the Big Ben struck or it didn't strike or whatever, and we actually left the EU. Again, a very joyous, packed occasion, really, really enjoyable evening and not a demonstration, but again, treated with total contempt and disdain, really, in mm. sections of the media, the way it was portrayed. And it was almost like they kind of looked at and just saw a mob of yobs. That was the only way they could, could see it. They just couldn't see beyond that. So as you then say, then on other demonstrations, there is a, 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 a willingness to say, oh, well, we support this demonstration. I mean, nobody says that, but we support this demonstration. So even though some of the behavior on this demonstration is not as we would want, you've got to understand it. You think, mm. oh, that's yeah. a, there's a stark contrast there before we start. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, a bit of empathy and trying to understand why people are angry and furious is an important thing to do, but that's across the board. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, it's so dishonest. And I think it's more overt than ever before, unless I'm just wide-eyed open to it. I don't know whether, what's the but difference. Your, but your experience, so quite a lot of people I know um, maybe have a similar trajectory to yourself, which is that they voted Remain. You know, they weren't necessarily enthusiastic, but they voted Remain. And they were really upset when Remain lost. And, from you know, they were not happy you know and I'd had lots of arguments with them but at a certain point um they became very queasy about the way that uh leave voters were being treated and they could see through that and um people you know will find this hard to believe but you know when I was standing as an MEP for the Brexit party some of the people on the stalls in the northwest were remain voters originally and I suppose they just felt like they'd become democrats anyway some of those people are the most ardent notices of some of these inconsistencies. You know, they kind of more than anyone have felt it and have seen it. And, it, and that's an interesting observation because they felt like, well, you know, all my, we went along with this and now look, this has turned nasty and we've got to take some responsibility for it. So that's an interesting thing that has occurred. And I think now, I mean, there is in some ways only a smallish rump of people who won't accept it. Um, but nonetheless, I think the attitudes that we saw, as it were, underneath British society, some of those anti-democratic trends, I think still very much exist. I mean, they haven't gone away. Mm. And the disdain with which people, uh, you know, it was revealed that we see ordinary people. I, I mentioned about elderly people. The other thing that's been funny in the coronavirus is, you know, we've all suddenly become great appreciators of the invisible front line not the nhs stuff i mean obviously the nhs stuff but not that mm. i mean more like you know everybody wants to say aren't tesco workers brilliant aren't you know the people who pick up the bins brilliant and the the van drivers who drop off your amazon parcels all these people who carried on working and you know it's kind of like we've got to remember them and they've been neglected up until they are the leave voters that you thought were knuckle draggers <laughs> only a few weeks months ago right that you talked about with great disdain now they're the unseen, unappreciated, unskilled workers of the country before they were the stupid, thick, easily manipulated, duped leave voters. And I don't obviously mean they're interchangeable, but um, I think that those kind of contradictions do need to be confronted so that people can think, oh yes, maybe I, maybe I, uh, I was too hasty in writing off millions of people in that way. Yeah, well, I, I remember the day of the referendum and the sorts of people I saw queuing to vote, because I'm in a leave area, 
um, were not the sort of people I'd ever seen at the ballot box before. Um, and I think that said, at the time, I think that said something totally different to me that now when I reflect, I see it as a, as a completely different message. Actually, these people felt completely disenfranchised and disempowered by local and national government. Um, one of the things that, that fascinates me in this discussion is that um, at one point in sort of policy circles, once the government had called the referendum, it was pretty clear that the majority of people in the country had not thought about whether we should be in or out of the European Union. And there was a danger, they call this referendum, which obviously they were quite cynically in many ways trying to use to settle the Europe question once and for all on the assumption that Remain would win. And there was a panic about mobilizing people. And it was, I was at a policy discussion in which um, somebody suggested that the way to do it was to really reinforce this notion that in uh, local and uh, general elections, often your vote doesn't really count. I mean, it counts on paper, but it doesn't really count because of boundaries and, you know, uh, and, and so on, inbuilt majorities. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the same people are going to get in, depending on the area. And so the idea was, well, this is the first time that we've historically, in the modern times, we're actually having a direct vote where every single vote will count. And they, that, that was the messaging that then came out of the referendum campaign. And actually, I think what happened was that people really bought that. They bought into that. I mean, because it was true. But and, mm. and what I found was that people who, as you say, might never have voted before, a bit cynical or had voted, but, you know, not really, felt a sort of sense of um, obligation. You know, it was like, oh, we've been asked to decide on an important constitutional question, you know. What do we think? Let's and you know, I kept meeting people who'd be saying, Oh, we're having family conferences to discuss what to do. Now, I wasn't, I've always been a Eurosceptic, but I was not a big, you know, I've I've never been on a demonstration on the EU before. I wasn't somebody who you would think of as I kind of agreed with Tony Benn's arguments on democracy. I mean, broadly, I'm not just Tony Benn, but I agreed with that problem of the but I wasn't somebody who was I didn't spend all my life wandering around talking about the EU. It was only in the referendum campaign, particularly in the way that there was an attempt at demonising anyone who would vote to leave the EU, that I took a bit of notice. So I started being invited to meetings and I, I started speaking at things. And there were people there who just genuinely felt that they were being taken seriously for the first time and that their vote mattered. And then they'd gone off and, as it were, you know, they didn't all read the side of a bus and buy the sun, as everybody thinks. They actually started like, you know, Googling and doing their research and, you know, there was Facebook groups and people started to feel they had this. So that was the reason why that was exciting was it was a genuine uh, democratic flourishing, if you want. You know, people started to take the notion of democracy seriously for the first mm. time, which was why then, and, and they didn't expect to win. And then leave one, and it was like, oh my God. And so many people said to me, I've never been on the winning side of anything ever before in my life, you know. So they were proud and excited. Within days, they were in, you know, national newspapers and in establishment circles being described as stupid and backward and racist. And the vote was being written off that they were manipulated and so on. And the sense of disillusion and bitterness that you felt that you were asked this question, you took yourself and the vote seriously, 
you realize what democracy meant for once you did it and then they blame you and they say that you got it wrong that really cut deep and really hurt people mm. it really did and that's why i'm saying that the not delivering of that would have meant a real i think a, a very serious uh, fracture in the democratic process which would have been very dangerous so people you know are relieved i think that they just as they would see it that the remain alliance didn't get away with it yeah i mean i, I don't know if i should be surprised at the contempt that was shown to those people because my children go to state schools and um the contempt runs through and the 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 lack of uh belief in people from poorer families is right the way through our education system from sort of behavior standards to how they're supposed to to achieve um you know i think we're in a, a bit of a shoddy time when it comes to to respect for those people i think that's right i mean you know one of the difficulties is that um there is a code and a language i mean this is maybe as your poster indicates behind you one of the things that I've really noticed is that there's a kind of uh, linguistic way that you indicate you're on the right side on a range of debates. You know, how you dis what what words you use, um, how you express yourself. There's a there's a language associated with the diversity industry that's almost a kind of management speak that means that you are easily identifiable and you can spot people and finish each of the sentences because we all know what we're supposed to say. Actually, I found that was one of the things when I was an MEP, when I went to Europe. I mean, everybody spoke different languages, but they all spoke the same language because they all knew exactly, they were all of a mindset and we knew where we were. It was a very kind of prescribed thing. And um, often people acquire that language, you know, because in NGOs or, uh, you know, it's certainly associated with public bodies and the university sector has obviously uh, been a huge important factor in e educating people into correct thinking and correct linguistics. Mm. So the reason I'm saying that is because more and more people, kids go to university, like about 50%, but there's whole swathes generationally and whole swathes of the country that don't know the code. And because they don't know the code, they are immediately considered to be backwards and uh, you know, and prejudiced and bigoted very often. Yeah. So they don't even. So I, I remember when I mean, but I remember when the uh, David Cameron put in the proposal for uh, gay marriage, and. It was one of those things where, you know, same-sex marriage, if you've been following these things, actually it was not a given that in the, uh, uh, the LGBT, LGB community that uh, same-sex marriage was the thing to do because there was a more radical anti-marriage atmosphere and, and so on. But practically overnight, a Conservative Prime Minister comes in, makes a proposal, and if you asked the question, well, that's weird. I didn't think that people from the same sex should marry each other. I thought it was about getting married and having kids. You were considered to be bigoted and homophobic. Mm. There was no real discussion or debate. And the reason I'm saying that was because people just, they just would say, well, I didn't know, you know, they, 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 at some point that, that conversation hadn't even been had, right? It was an yeah. assumption that you knew. And 
as it happens, that's become more and more intense as time has gone on. Not about, not about same-sex marriage, because most people will just accept it now. But the point about it was, was that it was used as a dividing line between them and us. So I think there's a linguistic way that that happens. And there's also a kind of behaviour way, you know, there's, I mean, we, we think we've kind of moved away from the etiquette of, you know, Victorian England and P's and Q's and what you should say and what you should do and how you should eat and what forks you should use. But there's a whole new etiquette. And if you fall foul of it, you will be called a bigot. You will be cast out of polite society and you will never be considered the right kind of person to invite round for dinner. And I think that that's partly an explanation for why people look out at the working class and say, those people just don't know how to behave. They don't speak the right way. You know, it's not, everybody wants to speak with an accent now. Everybody wants to, I mean, I don't mean it's that old code, but it's a different code and it's very pernicious and it's very dangerous. And we haven't even got onto, you know, the, the issues around trans, but that is important because that has suddenly consumed a whole section of society, as it were, whilst for millions of people, they're kind of looking and going, I just don't, un what? How did yeah, that yeah. happen? They just can't understand it. It, it. it doesn't appear logical. They're not sure. And you can't ask because if you ask, you're on the wrong side. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I've been on the wrong side so much. I've been interviewed by the, the police on my terrible words saying, please don't castrate children. Um, but the mob mentality and demonizing people is, is clearly a tool. Do you think it's because of social media that it's become a tool that's used far more than dialogue these days? I don't think it's because of social media. It's just that social media amplifies it. I mean, it's a, is the place we witness it rather than it's created it. it. It definitely then amplifies it. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? That, you know, the kind of the localized disputes you might have in a particular area then very easily become a major issue. Sorry. <coughs> it's, a, it's a minor issue, but somebody at the moment, you know, is just trying to get me on social media. But, you know, they ask you an impossible question that you know that if you answer it in a, whichever answer you give, you're damned. So, I ignore it. And then there's a constant stream of Claire Fox's car because she's ignoring this question. And what I'm saying is that that's something that they can do. That kind of bullying can happen on, mm. bullying, but you know, that kind of can happen on social media. They'd have to be standing outside your house otherwise. And so it's just a little, and sometimes they do, but you know, it's, it's, it's just a bit different. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, so social media is in there, but it, it doesn't explain the prior instinct for a kind of mobbing and, and the demonization, which I think is a, is a problem that, that you know, predates that or, or is, is just only reflected in it. I, I was thinking about, um, at the moment, there's a, you know, a lot of discussion about how one views statues of slave traders or how you view Black Lives Matters. And it is, an atmosphere in which it's almost impossible to try and speak with nuance because you're you're very much whose side are you on territory and that's one of the more depressing aspects of a polarized political atmosphere and kind of you know with the culture wars uh, layered on top of it or you know and what that means is that you you end up in order to indicate that you're not a bigot either being silent yeah. or 
getting forced into a corner where you're maybe crasser and more shrill than you would be if you were talking it through. But there's no, no one wants you to talk it through because there's, there's no room there for that. And social media certainly hasn't helped us with that, has it? And the no. atmosphere is one where one feels that walking on eggshells is the understatement, really. If you get done, you get done. And some misspoken phrase or some uh, awkwardness in the way you express yourself can mean that somebody's career, some young person's life can be completely ruined by that then being amplified. Yeah. I mean, the other day I said that there would have been better ways to tackle the statue of Colston because I lived in Bristol for most of my adult life. And someone said, well, you and I clearly aren't on the same side. <laughs> Just... yeah. well, I, I, exactly. I mean, I've been following the statues issue for ages because I wrote a little book on free speech and I, and I was writing it around the statue. So I kind of, and I'd written an article on Colston. So I, I'm, you know, and I was kind of just following all these things. It's kind of vaguely interesting. It's exploded into the scene. But, you know, I, so I've been saying, I didn't think that the Colson statue issue has been dealt with well. But anyway, you know, it was a flare up and, and so on. That's not really, you know, that happened in the heat of a demo. There's arguments about why the police then just stood there as they carried on. I mean, there's a kind of peculiarity of the police abdicating responsibility in that instance. And in some ways, as a consequence, many young people were are now going to end up, you know, having the law and order book thrown at them because the police stood by and let them behave in a way that maybe they wouldn't have behaved if the police had said, don't do that, for example. But anyway, that that's on one side. Anyway, people are saying to me, oh, so which bit of slavery do you not support? You know, do you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm now a pro-slave owning person because I want mm. to say something different on Colston statue. That's how ridiculous it gets. And that's not even, you know, that's not even um, unusual. As you know, you know, you, you get cast into these situations all the time. And certainly if you argue for free speech, then you're always put into this one, that gotcha question, you know, mm. would you support this person saying this? Yes, I would support anyone saying anything. Ah, therefore you agree with this person. And that's obviously not the case. And that was never the spirit of free speech. But it doesn't matter. You get trapped into it. It's so weird how the left seems to have given up free speech. Or rather, it's perceived to have given up free speech. And it's, a, it's like an ideal of the right. Um, when did that happen? Or, I mean, was I naive to think that it was an ever, ever an ideal of the left? No, I, I mean, it, it, that's, a, that's a, a very good question because it was, well, certainly it was an ideal of the left, but it also was just an ideal of all right thinking people. Do you know what I mean? And I mean, I don't mean right wing people. I mean, right thinking, you know, it's a kind of free speech is an important foundational value that we all accept and we all go along with. Actually, as it happens, I think that in some ways, feminism got embroiled in this very early on through the issues around pornography and they made, I think, some real mistakes of making no distinction between pornography and action. And so there was a kind of, there was a, a row within women's liberation at the time about representation and, uh, and reality and what the relationship between those two things were. I mean, you know, if you follow it back from then, what happened was that, that in some ways, partly parts of the left or aggressive movement made 
some concessions to saying we should ban certain things that then meant that there was a kind of uh, um, a, a, a pretty pretty much an unraveling of free speech. But that was only kind of a minor part of it. I also think that what really happened was that the left gave up on fighting for equality. I mean, they gave up on the real physical hard ground, convinced people that everyone should be treated equally and far better to just ban unpleasant words or, you know, to stop policing language and imagery. And honestly, it just kind of, they, they, so in other words, they felt that they hadn't won. You know, they felt um, unable to convince the majority of people of their outlook, I think. That's what mm. happened. And so you, you, you go somewhere else. And I, I do find it incredible when people feel very, face very real hardships often or discriminations or whatever that we are. I mean, even now, you know, look how quickly it's been in the UK that the brutal murder of a black man in America by the police has turned into a raging row over statues is an indication of everybody feels safer dealing with that. You know, that's a much safer territory. And so it's a real shame because the left have never, I mean, no progressive movement has ever got anywhere without free speech. It's precisely through the ability to argue and put forward unpopular views that progressive, I mean, that's a phrase I don't even like, but, hmm. um, but those people who, who would want social change, who were interested in social justice, you had to have that space to be able to argue that. That was very important. And often you'd be unpopular. Um, and, but you, you, you know, you know yourself the way it works, which is that you just, if you just close down the debate by saying that anyone who doesn't go along with this is a bigot, that is a very powerful threat. And it really takes some courage, and it's a credit to you that you've done it, but it takes some courage to say, I won't be silenced and I am prepared to take the label bigot. I don't mean because you are one, but I'm prepared yeah. to take that because I know that you're only using it in a particular way. For the majority of people, that could be career ruining and, and also socially uh, destructive. And so you just think, I, I tell you what, I won't say anything. And what used to be described as the silent majority, you know, in, in a kind of support at Mary Whitehouse, you know, censorship way in the old days. But there is actually, something of a silent majority. I, I find this with students, you know, they'll just say, um, you know, regardless of a particular trend in relation to student politics, deplatforming people and, you know, barring them in safe spaces, many students don't agree with that, but they are frightened to speak up. You know, it's not easy for them to speak up because once you then get the label bigger in a context of a university, that can be you know social death for you but actually can have detrimental impacts on your academic career and and you're just so they're kind of like nervous about it yeah well i get letters from people all the time who sort of they might say i shared one of your videos today i'm waiting for the backlash you know if i just because obviously i constantly say that women are adult human females um you know i'm not a near billionaire like jk rowling so <laughs> the response isn't quite so huge but I just I wonder where we start training people 
uh, in this. I, I wonder if it's schools because there's lots of teachers that go straight from uni, straight back into school, no real life experience. Uh, we've got politicians that think, seem to think that most people think whatever the Twitter mob says. Um, and I just wonder how we put an end to it. Do we sort of insist on free speech in schools? Do we totally eradicate um, any of this sort of censorship that goes on? Well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you, well, first of all, you can't, I think you should talk about free speech in schools, but there's always a danger that, you know, some uh, stroppy 14 year old says, therefore I should be able to say what I want. And obviously if you're 14, you're not allowed to say what you want. So you have to be quiet and listen to the teacher as it were, you know, there's a kind of immaturity there. But I do think that um, you're absolutely right about a cohort of teachers of a particular generation who already have, I, I, the way I see it is that politics has been replaced by um, almost like a checklist of a suite of opinions that you should have. That often people don't even think about them as just like sort of, these are the 20 things you must think. Everybody thinks these, don't they? This is what civilized people left leaning people think or you know just fair justice uh, supporting people think and it's as banal as you know knowing the right thing to say that's what I was trying to say about the linguistics so the problem is is that you've got teachers who just have think like that and they go into schools and everybody then thinks like that and there's very little interrogation of those ideas so I think one of the things is to encourage people to interrogate ideas and not just use the slogan and ask what it means what lies behind it can we have a discussion about it rather than just saying it you know fair enough if you're going to say that but can i ask and, and encourage young people to ask questions and encourage teachers to not be frightened when young people ask those questions and also for the teachers themselves to ask questions all of those kind of things um but one of the things i haven't mentioned is that um young people are also inculcated in uh, you know, socialized by by you know our generation and younger you know the, their elders um into believing that everything is frightening and that I, I you know I, I i you know there's a kind of catastrophizing as i described it but you know everything is about safety safeguarding uh you know uh, uh, uh health and safety gone mad all of these things but there is a sense in which we have overprotected the young we have the phrase cotton wool kids but even the health and safety commission started panicking that young people weren't going out and riding their bikes or you know why are we overprotecting children and schools are kind of paranoid places that are constantly fearful on children's behalf and parents often go along with this and part of that safety culture has been to say that words are as damaging as actions and that words yeah. threaten you and that they can psychologically, so, you know, that everybody will say J.S. Mill, you know, at the harm principle, but the harm principle has now been expanded to mean psychological harm. Psychological harm is now an ever expanding category. So apparently hearing the wrong words can create PTSD. I mean, it's a trivialization of serious mm. mental health problems, but nonetheless, it's what everybody says, right? And what everybody buys into. Yeah. So you also do get a generation of young people who, genuinely are, are being told by teachers you know if people bully you and by bullying another category that's massively expanded if somebody calls you a horrible name this will scar you for life yeah. and destroy you and will probably end up that you're a drug addict or in jail i mean they literally say this like sort of mm. don't say that don't say that how will anyone cope with anything so then young people are less resilient at dealing with the the 
the travise of being young, you know, people being bitchy about you or saying horrible things about you, which actually isn't just confined to being young, but there's a certain coarse insensitivity amongst, you know, 13 year olds that you hopefully grow out of. But if when you're 13 and you're on the receiving end of some of those childhood cruelties, you're then told by adult society that this will scar you, that can make it feel even worse, right? It mm. gives more power to the words, but it also can make you feel even more of a victim. And then, you know, the whole thing becomes that. So you grow up in an atmosphere where words are seen as threatening rather than as the weapons through which you can change things. Yeah. You know, that's that's a different kind of vibe. And I, I think that means that by the time you end up in adult society or you're young adults, you you basically have internalized a lot of that stuff. So, you know, words literally, and that's why people will say that if you were to go onto campus and speak, that you would destroy the mental health of swathes of young people, <laughs> that your words would be harmful in the, in the same way as if you went in and beat them up. That's the way they think, right? That's what yeah. they think. So, so that's why you then have, well, it's always done as a safeguard. That's why safe spaces are the demands. I mean, it's an incredible cultural shift that young people on the brink of the exciting adventure of being adults demand safety. I mean, how, what happened there? I mean, you're meant to be going off, you know, being a bit daring do, you know, taking risks, challenging orthodoxies and all the rest of it. Whereas in fact, the great demand is we demand safe spaces and not to hear things which will discomfort us. And if we hear anything discomforting, it will, it will mean that we have a mental health crisis. Mm. That speaks to a generation robbed of its capacity to cope with debate. So it's not yeah. just enough to say we want debate. You also have to, as it were, speak that. You have to say those things so that people start to recognise, oh yeah, maybe that is what's happened. Maybe... Mm. You know, like the way that you do, it's not just, a, it's just not enough to say, uh, 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 you know, uh, adult human female woman. I mean, that is, I, but you then have, you, you can't just kind of stand there saying it. You also have to then actually talk about it and discuss it and, and so on and so forth. And I think that that, so that we're not all standing in our separate corners with our banners, you know that you have to then start trying to explain what's really going on. And I think once you do that, people start to realise something going on here, you know, so yeah. what on earth is going on here? Well, when my daughter started secondary school, most of the girls had some sort of language around depression, stress and anxiety. And I found it just perplexing. You know, she would say that somebody was really stressed out in a class. I had to go and calm herself in the toilets. These are 11 year olds from quite nice families. Uh, and my son in his year five, so when he was 10, they had a week at school on mental health. And I just thought, you're just inviting it. That's all you're doing, it's ridiculous. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You supply people with the language of it as well. So, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, those uh, children, seven, eight, who say that they're suffering from trauma or have got anxiety, um, or, you know, exam-related stress. I mean, they use this language that they haven't picked up in the playground that's actually been taught to them. And, of mm. course, then it becomes a resource through which they, a prism through which they understand things. I mean, it's a pathologizing of everyday life, and you, understandably, you start to use it. But the other thing is, is that people are sympathetic to you if you use that language. Yeah. So they don't cynically do it, but it's, it's pretty obvious that if you... that 
in the contemporary period, if you say I'm traumatized or I'm having an anxiety attack, that you will get a huge amount of attention and, and, and concern thrown at you. If you say somebody's called me a name, but you know, and it, but you know, I'm being bullied and it's having a detrimental impact on my, on my, uh, uh, you know, I'm having anxiety attacks. I mean, the whole school will organize around that, right? Yeah. That, that becomes a major intervention, right? Um, so it's no longer so you kids obviously pick up then oh this is you know that as I say it's not cynical but they, they realize that that's the way to deal with things and you know obviously but I I, I, I she never likes me saying this story but I do remember when my niece was young and she said she was being bullied and honestly she was so upset and I was so upset on her behalf and I was absolutely you know ready to go off and fight them all off and you know like over diligently and then it, I kind of got to the bottom of it through the tears and she basically it was like two of her friends had not invited her to the pictures on the weekend and I said well that's not really that's not really bullying right and she said yes it is and of course it is because it's exclusion from friendship group which is one of yeah. the official bullying things and obviously I wanted to say look they've fallen out with you you'll find new friends you know god girls at school falling out I mean if that's bullying bloody hell and I'd fallen out with her. Anyway, she was absolutely adamant it was bullying and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, it took some getting through. But what I'm saying is she knew, if she had just said so-and-so and so-and-so said they're not going to the pictures with me, everyone would have just said, get over yourself. You know, we'll go to the picture. It wouldn't have been cruel. It just would have not been. Yeah. When you say it's bullying, it turns into this major issue. And so I think that young people understandably learn language, which is going to get them sympathy and get them a lot of support when they're trying and you know whereas actually it what it can do is just mean that they are not being allowed they don't understand this because they're young and that's fair enough but they're not being allowed to develop the kind of um metaphorical calluses that you need to be able to deal with what's going to be said to you and what's going to be thrown mm. at you over the bridge and people will say Oh, if you say calluses, it's like you want them to be beaten up and you, you know, bullying is good for you. I'm not at all saying that. I'm, I'm simply saying that life requires that we learn how to protect ourselves. It's developing our own autonomy. And if we constantly uh, ask for protection, which is what's most disconcerting about 18 year olds demanding that universities supply safe spaces, it infantilizes us forever. We never then become independent people who are able to say i stand here and i deal with the risks that face me yeah. sorry I, I, I'm, I'm rambling on but i just one thing I, I i'm a bit of a fan of camille paglia and um i watched <laughs> yeah all right right but when she said that thing when you know she explained that even in the 60s they had uh you know to be accompanied across campus um and they had to be escorted uh female students and there was a there was basically effectively a curfew they weren't allowed out of dorms they weren't allowed to, uh, out on their own in their bloody start of the 60s i mean remarkable to think of it and that the that the the women's uh, liberation groups at the time fought for the right to risk to be raped and she, so she said that and i you know it's like it's a shocking thing to say but she said well of course we did we wanted to be able to walk out across campus on our own after 10 30 guess what and of course, we explicitly said, we know what the risks are, yeah? We know that if we're unaccompanied by a male, 
that bad things might happen to us, but we want to be free and equal. And it is a shocking thought, but that's exactly what it's like, isn't it? You, you, you can say, I would prefer to be safe and stay at home and never leave. This is so ironic, the middle of coronavirus, and hide away <laughs> and always be protected by some great benevolent person. But women have fought for the right to, be, to put themselves at risk not because you're letting anyone off, but because you know that that is what, you know, damn it, I take the risk. I take the risk because I don't want to be protected by you so that I'm safe. And you throw away that. Whereas, in fact, there's a retreat back into safetyism and demanding being protected. Yeah, I I find that the stuff with the kids, I don't know why I keep going on about kids, but I find the thing with the schools is that you give a child the responsibility of knowing their, of deciding their biological sex, but you don't necessarily allow them to walk home alone. It's, there's such a disconnect. It's sort of, I've been thinking lately, life is almost like the difference between a true friendship and a Facebook like. It's all, it doesn't seem to be sort of placed in based in reality it doesn't seem to land on a physical sort of premise if you like but also you know that is an example where as it were adult political considerations end up being projected onto the young so our fears for the safety of the young are projected onto the young and they develop this pathologized view of the world um, and then we overprotect them as a consequence, as it were. But also, it is no coincidence that as adult society has become preoccupied by biological sex, that seven, six, eight-year-olds think about it, right? Because everybody else is preoccupied about it. They've picked it up. They've, they've realised it's a thing, right? And whereas people see this as liberation, it's actually um, an imposition on the young of an adult preoccupation, an adult society yeah. preoccupation. And then, you know, part of the protection of the young is to constantly say that they have to be, as it were, pandered to in, in mm. a way. You know, you have to, uh, you know, because they'll be damaged, their self-esteem will be damaged, their psyche will be damaged if you say, no, that is not true, right? You know, that is wrong, that is not true. So. There's a tension all the time about, you know, basically never challenging the young. And so we end up in this bizarre situation, as you say, which is that young people will often say things which they've gained from adult society's preoccupations. And then if an adult dare say, but it's not true, you know, that that little girl is a little girl. That little girl might be a little girl who wants to play football, but that little girl is not a little boy right? You are seen to be the monster damaging the self-esteem of the child. Whereas actually the little girl who's playing football thinks that the way to identify now is as a boy because it's become this acceptable thing that biology is dispensable with and all, and all sorts of reasons why you might do it. And maybe, you know, I, I mean, I had a, you know, I, I think what's really funny when you think back about your own childhood is I both had a ballet dancing phase that simultaneously ran alongside, which, you know, has kind of got an element of princessiness about it, that, that, that ran alongside a tomboyish sense of myself of not really liking what, what is it? I mean, despite the ballet, but I was a bloody model. 
because I was trying to work out who I was. That's what happens, isn't it? Yeah. Now, if somebody had introduced the element to me that my biological sex was up for grabs, God knows. Do you know what I mean? But that would have been part of the mix, wouldn't it? You would have, you would have ended up negotiating that into the whole thing. And, um, you know, I, I can't, I, 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 I genuinely feel that it's, we're doing young people the most huge disservice. You know, it's not yeah. just, it's not just the, the, the physical interventions in relation to that issue. That, that are well documented and that you've talked about, but just psychologically, what a terrible thing we projected onto the young to confuse mm. them. So that even if one is in good faith, a supporter of, um, uh, or, or, or not a supporter of biological sex, it, the intervention so young just is inevitably going to completely and does completely abandon young people to basically trying to negotiate an impossible situation on their own and they're going to get messed up by it. Yes. I mean, I think it's only at this particular moment in time that these things could be happening because everything else seems to be feeding into this bizarre sort of intangible reality. So it's not just, you know, trans, I think, is a, is a particularly good example of what's happening, but it's not the only, it's no, not the no. only sort of example of this weird monstrous thinking no no not at all because i think that that's what i was trying to say about not being able to to question things so i i i do think that's where it gets it gets very confusing i mean uh, you know some friend of mine was saying that her daughter's really upset because she didn't want to put the um black lives matters logo on her instagram now it, it guess what it isn't because she's a racist um, mm. it was because she you know she she's 11 12 she's quite bright she wasn't sure about it in the rest of it but the main thing was was that she was being bullied to put it on yeah right she was being told she had to put it on and you know that happens the next minute the school sends a letter out saying we hope that all parents will support our initiatives around black lives matter so if you were or you're already getting your peer group saying you've got to do this mm -hmm. the school sending letters out the schools that weren't open for kids to get educated have got plenty of energy when it comes to this and then it's like why have you done that you didn't need to do that right and but of course every institution is now in a panic so yeah the pressures on the young to conform to a particular narrative around a range of issues i mean as you say trans you can is there but it's not it that's that's an expression of a different thing and of course, identity politics in general has, you know, created such silos and that you can't challenge. So it really is that I say this as this, and therefore you've got to go along with me or else. It does create a very toxic, divisive mix where for many young people, they have to go along with it or they can end up being accused of being, so, I mean, it's what we said about adults, but it's that much worse for the young. Mm. I really think it, it's a minefield. Of course, many young people just think that this is an old fashioned attitude and that they naturally have supported all these different progressive causes and that people like me are a dinosaur. But when you dig deeper, it is the case that, as I say, there's many young people who do not go along with them, but you just don't hear from them. So there's yeah. a particular group of people. I, I, you know, I've done, talks where 
Um, you know, I, I, I remember one in particular, but you know, I did six one talk to six one all the time. And this young woman stood up and said, you know, how dare you come here? You know, can't believe the school has invited you here on our Founders Day to you know, destroy, uh, basically, because I was arguing for free speech. But, you know, you come here and you've created a fence and, you, and she started crying and there was a kind of mass. I thought, oh, God. And, and <laughs> I know, I know, it's sort of, and also I was like embarrassed because obviously I hadn't thought, I hadn't, I, you know, I hadn't really felt, um, I have, let me assure you, I wasn't as controversial as I could have been, let's put it that way. Anyway, they were, I, I, I later, anyway, she started and there was like this group of people, but then I looked around and I thought, well, for, and I just, and I just said, I mean, I've written about different instances of this, but she sort of said, you know, you must apologize and the school must apologize. And I said, well, I'm not apologizing for anything. You know, you are bright young women in a, in a, in a very good school. And I think you can cope with arguing back against me. And the best argument you can deploy is one where you argue, not just emote my opinion and I'm certainly not apologizing for what I've said because I mean what I say and the standoff was incredible because you could see that she was so shocked that anybody didn't back off right that that was that was kind of like in and of itself and as a consequence of not backing off it became clear that there was a small group and in fact they uh, they were the uh, the the um uh, the the group that had gone from being we'd like to know they'd gone from being the women's group to being, you know, the 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 gender, I can't remember what, but uh, they, they had dumped the women's group, right? They were 16, 17. And afterwards, the head teacher and some of the teachers said, oh, it's so good that you didn't back off, you know, because we've had a lot of trouble with that particular group of students who dominate everyone else. And then I got a number of emails from, from other girls in the sixth form afterwards just saying, oh, thank you so much. It was great that you did that because basically we're not, we can't, we, those people just dominate everything in our sixth form now. And if you don't agree with them, you just get really into trouble. So it was just so exciting because we've really been able to have a good discussion since you've been and mm. we've, we've kind of opened it up. And um, because they are, and I, I, what I thought was really weird was I thought, my God, it's like, it's like that acts, it's like the, it's like the way that people used to think of that, 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 those groups that'd be like the bullying groups. They're yeah. now often politicized, right? And they've kind of got this kind of cause and if you don't sign up to it, and they just try and intimidate, and mm. they and they try and cut, pull you into line. So I think it's it. I, and by the way, that had nothing to do with trans. That was to do with um, actually just about free speech and trigger warnings and the usual sort of yeah. stuff. But it, but but it was the way that she had such confidence when she stood up to say that it was a disgrace. I'd been invited. I mean, so rude, so rude. But uh, disgrace, and I'd gone and I destroyed, it. and then started crying. That you thought there is a performative element to this that people are used to doing, and as a consequence, everybody cowering and going away. And don't get me wrong, I, I didn't like it. I mean, it's not as though I kind of wallow in that, and you and, and it's uncomfortable, and you also don't want it. I'm, I'm not in the job of upsetting 16-year-old girls. I mean, I didn't want that. I was I went in good faith to give a speech, and I didn't mean to upset anyone. And so for a little moment, you kind of stand there and think, oh, my God, you know, do I need to... Do I need to apologize? You know, what's your like? You shrivel. Mm. Mm. And I'm a hack. <laughs> so if it's a fellow 16-year-old and they do yeah. that to you, it's much harder. Or if you're the new teacher who maybe is a bit different, who's trying to say something a bit different and create a culture of debate, and this group turns on you, well-established, vicious, and mm. goes for you, 
you probably take a step back and think, oh, yeah. maybe not, maybe not. Well, I do think it's girls as like, I have both sons and a daughter. Um, and my kids aren't like this because they've been taught to speak. Um, but it is, it does seem to be a female thing more than a male thing. I mean, I know that there are men that do it too. I'm not sort of making this huge um, generalization, although I probably am. But um, it seems to be women, especially talking on other people's behalf and taking offense. And it's, it's a currency, I think, sometimes in female circles. I think that's right. It's a currency, but that's partly because I think that parts of the feminist movements have gone down the victim route. And so actually um, it, it becomes your currency. You know, the fact that I am a woman becomes part of your, you, you, the cards I'm dealt. And these days they're better cards. I mean, you know, the, you know, although it's a kind of cliche to say it, but you know, the more victim points you've got, the more currency you've got. So yeah. that's what's so cyn cynically horrible about it. Rather than it being, a real fight for equality it becomes a way of uh, especially for especially by the way for young people who basically are not suffering the privations of you know not just slavery but you know these are not kids who live in the hood in chicago right you know yeah. they, they are not corner gangs right you know what i mean these are mm. often very privileged people but it becomes something which you can play as a card and that's what's so dispiriting about it, because the real fights for equality and justice, which are undoubtedly important to have, are somehow trivialised in the midst of that kind of game playing. Anyway, young women have that card automatically given to them, don't they? Young yeah. men, a bit more ambivalent, because a lot of them, because there is a, you know, well, you're a man, and that's already, uh, you know, you're already privileged. So, so mm -hmm. you're negotiating that. Uh, which is why so many young men have to find their own victim card in order to get in on the act. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. Yeah. And, and that's why the victim card gets played. And, you know, I see it all. I mean, by the way, that's, I, I, I say this as somebody who, you know, has worked with the mentally ill, but I've noticed that with the mental health thing, you know, so often, if you want to challenge someone, they'll say, well, you know, is it, I think you've got to understand that, I, I mean, I'm on the autistic spectrum. That's not mental health, but they'll say I'm on the autistic spectrum. Or I think, you, you know, you can't say, you know, I've got depression. And so I just think it's completely unfair that you come here and say these things that are going to trigger me. And I'm like, what? You know, so everybody's kind of looking for something to protect themselves. So I think young women have sadly you know, gone along with that victim story. I mean, that's become part of something that we hated, resented as women for many mm. years, wanted to get over, is now in the contemporary culture become an advantage. That's the reality. Yeah. Well, I've got so in loads of, sorry. Yeah, go on. Well, I've got in loads of trouble because they were talking about domestic violence. It was a feminist discussion on domestic violence. And I said that they were like, all women, can be victims of domestic violence. And I said, well, I don't think that's true because some women will have the tools to recognize very early signs of abuse. And we know from the Freedom Programme that certain abusive men, um, and I'm not limiting uh, abuse to men, but certain abusive men will target particular women that they know that they can abuse. And I was basically told that I was a victim blaming, woman hating, um, evil person. Yeah, but I mean, that's a, a perfect example of, like, I don't even know if I agree with you because I haven't thought about it in that way, but which is why discussion is so important because something like domestic violence is a complicated matter. 
Yeah, I mean, it's complicated in as much as even when people use a term now, it is now broadened out. So we used to think that it was this. And I'm not even saying it shouldn't be broadened out. I mean, there are, yeah. I've watched some of those psychological bullies destroy people's lives. I get all that. But you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to have that conversation. Because as soon as you start to say, well, can we talk about this in a different kind of a way? Well, my sister worked, you know, has worked with, um, uh, runs a, a women's centre and uh, one of my sisters. And she always says that thing, you know, domestic violence is, horror but everything isn't domestic violence and it's not always so straightforward mm. but she can't have that conversation amongst her peers you know you can't discuss that at all and um yeah so it just drives me mad because then you're accused of victim blaming and and in all of these different instances where something is complicated by reality. I mean, that's the truth. Reality impinges in. You know, some some people, you, uh, the Chrissy Hines story comes to mind. You know, somebody tells a complicated story of their youth about why, and, and basically says, you know, I was getting off my face and, and drunk all the time and hanging around with a bunch of bikers and, you know, guess what? I got abused and I got to own that. Doesn't, I don't care what anyone else thinks. She told that story because it was yeah. a true story. Mm. And everybody said, you can't say that. You know, do you mean you can't say that? Well, of course you can say it's what happened to her. She was reflecting on what happened to her and why she thought it happened. But, and then, I, so I then defended it and I was accused of victim blaming and becoming an apologist for victim blaming. So that's what you get. So it, it, it's, it, it's the whole secret of all this is that you end up in a scenario where you're not allowed to ever question a very prescribed narrative. And if yeah. you do, you'll be labelled. Well, my final question, because I realise I've kept you for a long time. Yeah. Um, statues, do they belong on plinths or in the river? Yeah, so uh, like everything there, it's not black and white. And uh, there's always an argument for why a statue might come down or why it might not come down. But it should be a discussion and an argument. But broadly speaking, I think they're inanimate objects um, that sprung up in different historical periods that are kind of quite interesting. Most of the time we don't notice them. The idea that if you walk past a statue, it creates contemporary racism or does damage to your body or is the equivalent of physical violence is absolute made up nonsense. Mm. That, is a, that is a contrivance. Most people walked in Oriel College past the statue of, um, uh, I can't remember his name, my God. Um, anyway, him. who are we? Uh, Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, didn't know it was Cecil Rhodes never notice a statue, then it becomes a big issue. And then they say, the reason why racial inequality happens at Oxford is because of that statue. And it's like, no, it isn't, right? So you can take it down if you want. You can put a plaque up if you want. But what you shouldn't do is just demand that all statues are taken down and, that everywhere, and you're not allowed to question it at any point. I mean, that is ridiculous. And there is an erasure of history and there is an elision of the historical past in all its complexities with the contemporary period that people start to uh, buy into. And there's also an unpleasant essentializing of people of color as well, because what you're basically saying, if, if people say, you know, as a black um, uh, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, you know, I have the same experience and I know exactly how it feels to be a slave. It's like, no, you don't, <laughs> that's the deal. 
right because you're black you don't right that's not you know like any more than we could all do it you know i could walk past cromwell statue and say i feel the same pain as my irish for you know family uh, uh, from the famine and i feel like i'm starving and that every time i walk past that is re-injures me and it creates no it doesn't it's a statue of cromwell and it means lots of different things mm. it's just that i wouldn't I don't think on principle, I'd say that you never remove a statue. That's all I'm trying to say. I, it's not, that's not a principle, but the principle that I won't have uh, broken is the idea that you're not allowed to question the removal of statues and that the, uh, the flattening out of history in a simplified way, in a simplistic way, I will not say that's a good thing. It's a really, really uh, bad thing to happen. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute delight. Thank you very much. Well, the warmest thank you to Claire Fox there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, please do remember to like, share and subscribe. And apparently if you leave me a review, it does something wonderful to the heavens above. So uh, please consider that. Anyway, see you next time. Bye.